Hey, uh, this is uh, our last uh, weekend before Christmas Eve, and so we continue our journey towards Christmas in our series called The Gift, and it's all about re-examining the greatest gift ever given by anyone to anyone, and that was the gift of Jesus, God's Son who came to the earth to dwell among us, to live among us, and to do such an amazing work that it changed everything for the human race. Um, We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, this morning, uh, working our way through the entire chapter this week. We're in verses 29 through 34, if you want to follow along in your Bible. God came, our big idea this morning is that God came to take away sin. We've been uh, studying how uh, the gift in, in the beginning, in the first five verses, the gift we found out and discovered was God himself who came in the flesh. And, and so uh, as he came, we learned that he also came to offer new birth, that uh, that regeneration of our spirits uh, was part of the work that Jesus came to do so that we could be restored in our relationship to him, so that we could walk with him, we could know him. And then, of course, uh, last week, um, we discovered uh, the truth that Jesus came to change everything. He came in a spirit of gracious truth. And so he brought to us uh, uh, in kindness and in love and in mercy, but in 100% objective truth regarding our situation, who we are and what needs to happen in our lives. This week, again, the big idea, God came to take away sin. The definition of sin in the Bible uh, has a couple of different ideas, but really kind of at the core of it is this idea that it is to miss the mark or to fail to measure up. I don't know if you've ever missed the mark in your life, failed to measure up. (laughs) Um, When I was in uh, a young man, I I kind of enjoyed playing basketball. I wanted to play, but um, I wasn't quite good enough. And and when I was younger, a little bit uh, uh, lanky and and uncoordinated. And so um, as I got older, uh, my senior year of high school, we moved to a new school, a small school in Montana. My dad pastored a little country church. And uh, this was a school where um, everyone played every sport. And so uh, when I showed up, six foot four, 180 pounds, I was recruited for the football team first. And they put me on the line just kind of to, you know, obstruct people, maybe slow somebody down. I didn't know what I was doing. But I learned and I had fun. And then basketball season came around and I was recruited for that. And uh, I found out that I really um, had a little bit of talent that showed up. I didn't know it was there. And things kind of started to come together. And so I really got dedicated to basketball. I'd get my brother up. He was a freshman. I was a senior. Get him up every morning during basketball season pretty early. We'd get to school maybe 5 o'clock while it was still dark. And I'd practice. I think he practiced. He was more of a football player than I was. And uh, he did better in football than I did in basketball. But but uh, just worked really hard at it. And and then I graduated and went to a small school in Omaha, as I've told you, Grace Bible College. And they had a just a, um, not a scholarship team, just a, a walk-on, whoever was available. And so I, I tried out and to my amazement, uh, made the team, one of two freshmen. And so I worked really hard and had some talent, had a lot of fun, didn't, was learning a lot, right, and trying to figure things out. But um, one of the things I didn't do very well and I didn't come into college with very well was the ability to be a good student. Uh, I just kind of got through high school. I think some of my teachers passed me on so that they wouldn't have to get me again, maybe. But, but, um, but you know, I mean, but I wasn't very good at it. And so uh, my first semester in college, I, I kind of got through. 
was able to keep playing, but by the end of the second semester, as spring came, I found out that Mr. Johnson gave me like a D minus, I think, in English. And so I wasn't going to be eligible to play basketball the next year, which was a big disappointment. And so I, um, you know, went home for the summer, worked, uh, made some money, all that stuff that you got to do, came back in the fall. Coach wanted me to still come to practice and was hopeful that I'd figure out my grades. And so I tried doing that for a little while. But one of the things I did do as I came back was I got focused on becoming a better student. I said, I got to figure this out. I came here to go to school and to grow in my relationship with God and to learn the Bible and, to, and I want to do this. And so I really started to work at it. It was hard. And at first I tried harder. I didn't get any better. But over time, somehow uh, I started to get it figured out and the grades on my uh, papers started going up a little bit. And uh, I ended up graduating from Grace with a pretty respectable GPA. Got better every year. But anyway... Uh, that, for that semester where I failed to measure up, I missed the mark. Boy, it was a big disappointment. Maybe you have experienced something like that too in your life. A time where you failed to measure up. This happens probably to all of us in, in some way. When we live our lives as, as uh, human beings, we come into the world, we have a problem and an issue that we're born into a world that has been cursed and marred by sin. As a race of people, we fail to measure up to God's standard. He created us. He uh, made us in his image. We are designed to reflect him. We're designed to live as human beings made in the image of God. Yet sin skews our identity as God's children. Skews who we are. And it's a tough subject. It's hard to deal with. We wrestle with it a little bit. But one of the things we discover down through time as preachers and theologians and thinkers have talked about it and thought about this issue is that um, human beings were a little different than the rest of creation. You know, uh, we have some little dogs at home. Uh, they're miniature um, Dotsons. And uh, they're kind of cute. And, and uh, they're little dogs that aren't necessarily super... Uh, yippy and loud and stuff, so I, I can tolerate them. But, but they find their way into your heart. But you know, we have these dogs. They're cute and they're wonderful. But these dogs do not struggle with being dogs. They accept their identity as a dog and they just live as dogs very happily. And we have some chickens uh, at our place. And, and our chickens don't struggle to be chickens. They just are chickens. That's who they are and that's what they do. Sometimes they struggle to lay eggs like they're supposed to. But but they, they're chickens, right? They don't wrestle uh, and struggle with being chickens. We have uh, some cows, right? A few cows. They don't struggle to be cows. They accept their identity. They live it out the way they were designed. But people have noticed over the millennia that human beings, as human beings, we struggle with being human. We wrestle with it. And uh, we even have a terminology when we see people acting in a way that doesn't measure up to what we know we should do. We call it inhuman. They're acting in an inhumane, in an inhuman way, right? And, and yet, and so we see it, and we recognize the problem, but fixing it becomes difficult. The Ten Commandments given through Moses to the nation of Israel address some of these inhumane behaviors. These patterns of behaviors that we fall into as people, as human beings that do not reflect the way we're supposed to act, the way we're supposed to live. There's uh, uh, one of the Ten Commandments, right? It addresses how we're to talk about God. We're not to misuse God's name. Do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. We are to have a respect for the God who created us. Uh, we're made in his image. We came from him. 
He's our heavenly father. We're to respect him. Isn't it interesting that still today, uh, some of the favorite curse words that people have, and maybe some of us even struggle with, is God and Jesus, Christ. Why is that? Why, Why do we struggle so much? Why are those the words that need to get inserted into our vocabulary, right? Just interesting, and yet we're called to live differently, to honor God's name and not misuse it. It's inhumane. It's inhuman to disrespect the God who created us. We're taught to honor our parents. Honor your father and mother, right? Um, And yet we struggle with that. The human race has been rebellious towards authority, towards our parents uh, from the beginning, from the, the, the moment that the curse of sin fell on us. And so we struggle to honor our parents, yet God tells us it's inhuman not to do that. We're taught in the Ten Commandments not to kill, not to murder, um, perhaps we don't struggle with that, although the human race does. Murder rates are on the rise, increasing in our culture, in our society. And yet we struggle with, as Jesus said, if you call your brother a fool, you're guilty of murder. We struggle with being angry towards others, with speaking uh, harshly to them, thinking negatively about them, critically getting angry and furious with them and their behavior. We're hurt by people and we return evil for evil. We struggle. It's inhuman to treat others that way. We are taught in the Ten Commandments not to commit adultery, not to have sexual relations outside of the marriage relationship. It is a covenant. It's a protected thing. uh, Sexual relations are to be held for that relationship and that environment alone. And yet we struggle. Um, More and more people, even those claiming to be Christians, live together before they're married. It's hard, right? We seem to struggle. We don't seem to be moving in the direction that God calls us to with these things. And yet, the Ten Commandments would indicate to us this kind of behavior is inhuman, that we should be honoring and respecting uh, um, that aspect of who we are as human beings. We're taught not to bear false witness against our neighbor, not to lie about others. And yet in our culture, in our world, we struggle with that. Sometimes we do it out of resentment, jealousy, uh, uh, anger, sometimes to hide our own guilt, misdirect. We spread things that aren't true. We say things about others that aren't true in order to hurt them. There's a couple of commandments about not coveting, not wanting what others have. And yet we oftentimes are fueled with the desire to get more than others have, to get further in life than they are. And our motivation is a bit of jealousy, a bit of a desire to have what others have. We struggle to be human as God intended for us to be. He wants us to act and live in accordance with his character, and yet we struggle. Um, When we do fall short, when we don't measure up, Of course, we don't want to be discarded. We don't want to be brushed aside. We we don't want to be judged harshly. We want God to show mercy on us. We want others to treat us with grace. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, addressed this issue. He says it this way, For a long time, I used to think this a silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, 
I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel or cruelty uh, for cool, cruelry, cruelty and treachery. But it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves. Being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping, if it is in any way possible, that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. We find in our text that this gift that came from heaven, God himself, God in the flesh, he came to restore in us the character, the nature that we were designed to have. He came to make us human again. Um, We see in this first verse in our passage of John chapter 1 and verse 29, we see that um, sin has a cost, and the cost is very high. In fact, we see that a sacrifice was required to take sin away. Sacrifice was required. Let's read verse 29 together. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! Some versions say, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, he refers to Jesus with that uh, reference, that identity. And there's a lot packed into the, the, um, the name Lamb of God. Uh, it harkens back to the Old Testament. Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God is absolutely essential to the fulfillment of his purpose and mission. He is to fulfill a work that God has sent him to do that requires that he take the position and posture and identity of a lamb. Well, what's the significance of a lamb? When we look back into the Old Testament, we find this theme, this uh, imagery, this example, if you will, of a lamb and how lambs are used uh, to deal with the sin issue of the people of God. See, lambs were required to be sacrificed to cover over the people's sin. Uh, One of the places we see uh, kind of an exact representation or a type, if you will, of Jesus being the Lamb of God is in the story of Abraham. Abraham was the first follower of, of God. Yahweh came to Abraham, called him out, and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a promise to you that involves three things. I will give you a land, right? A place to occupy, the land of Canaan, which Abraham got to move into and begin to occupy. I'll give you seed or offspring. You will, uh, they'll be so numerous that they'll be more than the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore, right? And then I'll give you a blessing or I'll bless the world through you. Three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. And so God made this promise to Abraham. And if you know the story of Abraham, you realize that Abraham was married to Sarah. And though God said you're going to have offspring, you're going to fill, you know, the earth is going to be filled with your descendants. Abraham and Sarah had no children. Sarah was not able to conceive. And they tried this thing with Hagar, um, a handmaid of Sarah, and had Ishmael. That blew up in Abraham's face. And and so a problem persisted, but an angel, the angel of the Lord came and told Abraham, Sarah's going to get pregnant, you're going to have a child. Abraham was like, we're over 100, we're, we're old, this can't happen. And he said it will, 
Remember, Sarah laughed. There was a disbelief. And yet God fulfilled his promise and Isaac was born. And the day came as Isaac grew and grew into his teenage years probably that God came to Abraham with a test. <clears throat> Seems like a difficult, cruel test in some ways. And yet it came from the heart of God to test Abraham's faith in him. Abraham, uh, God came and, and told Abraham that he wanted him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to him. And Abraham responded correctly. Okay, yes, Lord, um, we'll do what you say. And so he took Isaac with a load of sticks on his back and they went to the top of the mountain. And as they got to the top in Genesis 22, Isaac was asking, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? In verse 8, Abram answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And if you know the story, when they got to the top, there was no lamb. Um, Abraham bound Isaac's hands. Um, I was reminded this week, my wife uh, reminded me that Isaac probably could have overpowered his older father, but he submitted and surrendered to what God had asked his father to do as well. And so Isaac got on the altar. And as Abraham raised the knife to take the life of his son, his one and only son, the answer to the promise he had no other children. God, how is this going to happen? But he trusted God. He'd been tested and he'd grown in his maturity. He trusted God. And so he was willing to do it. The angel came and stopped him. And then there was a lamb in the thicket that they were able to sacrifice. This imagery of a sacrificial lamb continues into Exodus when the nation of Israel is leaving Egypt. And uh, they've been enslaved for 400 years, and God raises up Moses, right? And you remember as the ten plagues uh, are um, um, <clears throat> imposed on Egypt and on Pharaoh to break Pharaoh's will, nine of them occur. Pharaoh is still hardened in his heart, and so God puts on him the tenth plague, which is the, the life of the oldest child in every home. And remember, he came to the nation of Israel and told Moses what the nation needed to do so that this didn't occur within their homes. They were to take a lamb and sacrifice it, put the blood on the doorposts, and the angel of death would come and pass over their home and not judge them for their sin. The sacrificial lamb. We see it enacted in the Old Testament in the, in the law, the law of Moses, and many in our day say, what a gross, disgusting practice. And to that I say, yeah, that's kind of the point the point is to show us that sin has a cost. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, the prophet speaking, prophesying about the Messiah says this of him, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of God. See, our condition was a helpless one, a hopeless one. And yet Jesus, God himself, came to earth to offer himself as the sacrifice. Um, within Jesus is the whole identity and the capacity to deal with sin. 
as this verse continues to say, the Lamb of God who takes away, takes away the sin of the world. Jesus being God, perfect, pure, made it possible for him to be that sacrifice, to take on himself the sin of the world of every human being and to pay that price. And being a man with flesh and, blown, uh, flesh and bone and blood in his veins was required The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. John 3.16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is who the gift was. This is why the gift was given But as we continue in our text this morning, we see that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was sent to pave the way and prepare the nation for Jesus. He even acknowledges that in the beginning, at first, even John didn't recognize Jesus at first. Uh, Let's read verses 30 and 31. He is the one, John continues, he's the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. John says, I came to prepare the way, prepare the nation for the Messiah to come. But at first, I didn't even recognize him. I didn't know that's who he was. I wasn't sure of his identity. Remember, John was the cousin of Jesus and six months older, so they grew up aware of each other. John could see there was something significant in Jesus. He could see that he was a great teacher, that he had power, that he was on the move, but he wasn't sure exactly who he was. Um, There needed to be a sign for John to recognize Jesus. And there is something that opened his eyes to who Jesus was. It enabled him to identify Jesus, not just as a good teacher, not just as a powerful man, but as the Son of God, as the Messiah. See, at Jesus' baptism, his true identity was revealed. Let's continue reading in our text in verse 32. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I did not know he was the one But when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. John was told by God how he could identify Jesus as being the Messiah. The Holy Spirit is going to descend on him. Like a dove, 
in the form of a dove. Of course, the church has taken that and kind of run with it. And a dove represents the Holy Spirit. And perhaps it was a dove that descended and landed on Jesus, the Holy Spirit in that form. But it also could have been a a, a fluttering. Whatever happened, uh, John could see the Holy Spirit and could see him descend and rest on Jesus. And in that moment, he could identify him as the chosen one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one he came to prepare the way for. See, he was baptizing people with water in keeping with repentance, calling the nation of Israel to turn from their sin and turn towards God. John's endorsement was a powerful one. I don't know if you've ever needed an endorsement in order to succeed in a direction, to be able to do something. Endorsements are powerful. They're very important. They open doors. I remember when Mary and I uh, had been married four years. We had our first daughter, Jessica. She'd just been born. And we were headed, because I felt like God was leading us there, we were headed to the farm to work on the family farm with uh, her family, her dad, who was a third-generation farmer. His great-grandfather had homesteaded the land there in central Nebraska in Custer County and uh, in, a, in a group of Norwegian immigrants. And so um, they had uh, strong roots to the community. He had been there for generations. Virtually everyone knew him. <laughs> they knew who he was and he had been successful at bull breeding and raising Hereford bulls back in the day. Very successful. People knew him. He had a reputation. And when we got married and we moved there and I started to work with him, we would go out in the community. I'd tag along for different things. And, and almost every time we would run into a new person that I hadn't met yet. He'd say, hey, have you met my son-in-law, John? Ah, <clears throat> oh, man, I don't understand why things get me sometimes. Hey, um, have you met him, you know? And he'd introduce me, and, and then he'd say, ah, you know, he's living with us, he's working with us. I could feel his endorsement. There was some, you know, he was, <clears throat> he was proud, and he, was, uh, he wanted people to know who I was, and it opened a door in that community. I remember one time um, I did something that wasn't probably quite right. I was driving a vehicle, and I, I did something a little goofy. It wasn't horrible, but there was a guy that came, chased me down, pulled me over, a man in the community, and was like, Hey, you shouldn't have done that. You know what you're doing. Who are you? I said, well, I'm Daryl Lawton's son-in-law. I married his daughter, Mary. He was like, oh, go on your way. (laughs) Uh, uh, Endorsements matter, right? Uh, People open the door for us. And uh, when I got into ministry, felt called into ministry, a friend that knew me that I'd gone to college with, he put my name in to a church in McCook, and it opened the door so that I could be a youth pastor there. And, And so these things matter. John the Baptist's endorsement mattered. It was a powerful endorsement because he signifying, speaking to, and identifying Jesus as the Messiah caused people to recognize who he was. Uh, It opened their hearts to him. You see, the nation of Israel saw John as a powerful figure. They respected him. He spoke truth, right, to power. He spoke and called out Herod for his, his uh, adulterous relationship. He'd married his brother's wife, and John called him out for it in public. The common people just loved John because he did that. They also were convicted by his message, and thousands went out to be baptized. They repented of their sin. They turned towards God. When John saw the endorsement of God, he 
he followed suit. When the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, John identified. You know, Matthew's gospel gives us a little more information on this endorsement of Jesus. In Matthew 3, verse 16, he says, After his baptism, uh, Matthew writes, As Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. Then second, uh, verse 17, And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. The father endorsing the son. An endorsement filled with pure love and affirmation. Jesus came to take away sin. In order to do so, he had to be the son of God. Only God could pay the price for sin. Only God could take sin away. His endorsement is powerful. God the Father endorsing his son. John the Baptist affirming that, seeing it, and endorsing Jesus. Proclaiming to the nation of Israel, this is the Messiah, he's the chosen one. He's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. The Bible calls us as believers to practice what John called the nation of Israel to practice. The Bible teaches us that we will at times, as we follow Jesus, we've been released from the bondage to sin, but we'll still struggle with sin. John himself in his writings, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remember, but his writings, he addresses this issue in 1 John as he uh, encourages believers how to deal with this issue of sin. Uh, When Jesus came to take away sin, we put our trust in him. The Bible tells us that when we put our faith in him, we are justified or made right. And then the Bible teaches us that we're sanctified, we're set apart for God to follow him, to serve him, to live for him. And yet we struggle with sin. Though we've been set free from it, though we don't have to sin, we still struggle with it. We're drawn towards it. We have weakness at times. And so in the life of a believer, we must practice what John talks about in 1 John chapter 1. Starting in verse 8, he says this, If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. We're not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, if we confess our sins to him, confession is simply to agree. It's to agree that if God says something is sin, then we agree and say it is sin. We acknowledge what he says is the truth. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness, all unrighteousness. This practice of confession is something that must be a part of the life of the believer, a follower of Jesus. We can't claim that we don't sin. We're not supposed to. We're to work, uh, uh, to move away from sin towards God, and yet we're going to struggle with it. To deny that is to live with it in our lives to accept its presence, and we can't do that. We must not do that. We're sanctified. We're set apart. We're to deal with sin, to identify it, and to move away from it. Confession is the beginning. It's to acknowledge it's there. It's to agree with God that I have sin in my life, and I'm going to confess it to you. And the process of confession brings about God's just forgiveness, his gracious forgiveness, and a a restoration of our relationship with him. Again, this isn't in keeping with justification, our salvation. When we come to Christ, we know our sins are forgiven once for all. But as we walk with him, 
We must practice confession. And the second thing John talked about was repentance, to turn from sin. He goes on to say, verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads with the fa- uh, pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Confession and repentance. We are called to walk in the truth, to walk in a transparent way before God and even before others and to acknowledge where there's sin in our lives and to deal with it. We must do that if we are to remain on a path of following God. If we don't, we will fall astray. We will go adrift and our lives will lose the power that they're to have. Sin becomes an issue and it It probably is for all of us in some way. And so it's a simple process of confession and repentance. I wonder if you are walking in that rhythm on a daily basis. Sometimes we neglect it. Sometimes we we allow it to, to, to stop. We allow ourselves to get focused on other things. And we begin to see and experience the effects of sin if we're not careful. If we don't address them, then they'll 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 begin to creep in. Walking in the light means to walk in the truth and to walk in a way that allows our deeds to be exposed. We're not afraid of that. We want God to see and expose and to heal. We want to confess and repent because we want to be, uh, uh, we want to grow and we want to mature and we want to be healthy followers of Jesus. Do you find yourself um, gossiping, talking about others in a malicious way, in ways you don't know are true? Do you find yourself living with unforgiveness, hurt and anger towards others. It's Christmas time, it's holiday, we're gonna spend time with family. Sometimes that's the hardest. Where are you at with that? Do you find yourself desiring to have others, other people's stuff or success or even spouse? Or do you find yourself jealous of others, coveting what they have? Are you consumed with bitterness, resentment? The Bible says that to Go in unforgiveness leads to bitterness, which is allowing the devil a seat at the table in our lives. We're literally inviting him in to influence what we do in the direction we go in. Where are you at? Are you dealing with the hurts, the wrongs that you're going to face in this life? Are you filled with fear and anxiety? Do you have a lot of anxious thoughts? We all struggle with that in some way. Have you allowed pornography? Have you allowed lust? Have you allowed a substance to enter your life and find a place there? Are you tolerating it? See, Jesus didn't come to die and to take away our sin so we could continue to walk in it. And it's hard. It's a battle against our flesh. It's a battle against the world we live in. It's not easy, and yet we're called to freedom from bondage to those things. We're called to follow him. I wonder if you're walking in that freedom today. I wonder if you're allowing the Spirit of God to pour over your life, reveal those things to you, and without, uh, with humility, just to confess them. Say, God, yep, I agree. That's in my life and it shouldn't be there. And to repent, and repentance just means to turn the other direction, to walk towards God instead of towards sin. Remember the little girl who was 
trusted Christ in a church. She came to faith and, and one of the elders was talking to her and asking her about her life. Well, what happened as a result of your salvation? Did you stop sinning? And she said, no, I didn't stop sinning. He said, well, what has happened in your life? What, what's the difference? And she said, well, I used to be a sinner walking towards sin. Now I'm a sinner walking away from it. <clears throat> Allow God to do his healing work in your life. Don't let pride, don't let position, whatever, stop you from experiencing the goodness of God, the healing of God. We need it so bad. We accept things that we shouldn't so easily. As we move into uh, the end of our service, we'll take communion. And remember that one of the things we're challenged in Scripture is to take communion in a worthy manner. That means we're not disrespecting what it represents and who it represents. And so we confess we repent as a process of preparation to take communion, to take the Lord's Supper. I just invite you, implore you to allow that process to do its work in your life. Invite it. Invite God in. Allow him to do his rejuvenation, his restoration, his cleaning. It's life, and he wants us to live in him. You know, um, Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples, he took a loaf of bread and broke it. He said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. Take a piece of it and eat it, right? And so they did so. And then he passed a cup of wine, said, take a sip of this. This represents the, new, uh, the blood of the new covenant or a new covenant in my blood and through it where God is going to create a new relationship with the human race and where no longer the sacrifices of lambs Blood, uh, the blood of bulls and goats would be required for God to overlook our sin. But it was actually going to be dealt with once and for all by Jesus, the Lamb of God. <laughs> Take away the sin. Walk in newness of life. Walk in healing. As you prepare to take communion today, allow God to pour through your heart. Ask him to reveal anything that you need to confess and repent of and take that bold step of obedience. As we take communion, I encourage you to pray with your family, uh, with those you came with by yourself. Thank God for his work. Thank Jesus for being the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. God, we thank you for your goodness to us and the blessing that you bring into our lives, blessing upon blessing because of your presence, because of your grace and forgiveness. God, help us to walk in confession and repentance, uh, acknowledging what you've done for us, that you came as the Lamb of God, a sacrificial Lamb, to, yes, shed your blood, to pay for our sin, but to remove it completely. Father, help us to walk uh, in, in uh, holiness, help us to walk in purity, help us to root out and deal with the sin in our lives, not accept it, not allow it to stay. Continue to confess and repent so that we can be set free and we can move towards you. Jesus, as we take communion today, we just want to say thank you. We have hearts of gratitude. We know in a small way what you've done for us and we know someday we'll see it clearly and perfectly and so we're thankful Help us to live out of gratitude. Help us to live lives that reflect your nature and your character.
so others can see who you are through us. God, purify us, strengthen us, restore the joy of our salvation. Jesus, thank you for this time to remember what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.